2: From KQED.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prail, In for Michael Krasny. Last week, the National Book Foundation, which promotes literacy and reading, held its 71st annual National Book Awards, celebrating the year's best literature. It was the last award ceremony for the organization's executive director, Lisa Lucas, who in January will move into a new role as senior vice president and publisher of Pantheon and Shocken Books at Penguin Random House. She'll be the first black woman in the job, just as she was the first black woman to helm the foundation. She joined the foundation after serving as publisher of the arts magazine Guernica and as director of education at the Tribeca Film Institute. Welcome to Forum, Lisa Lucas.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, so I've been looking forward to speaking with you, and I'm sure there are many of us who may have been touched or impacted in some way by the work that the National Book Foundation does, but might not realize it. And so I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about why the foundation exists.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, so the foundation came after the National Book Awards, actually, although we've always been the administrator. So in 1950, uh, the the Academy of American Publishers and the American Booksellers Association got together to put together this incredible award. And it's been pretty impactful from day one. And so people know the awards, right? Every year you see the medallion on a book in a bookstore, you see, you know, the news when we have our winners, you kind of get the read on what the landscaped is in the literary world, but people don't realize that we do year-round programs. And so we've gone over the past five years to libraries and um, colleges, universities, you name it, to actually just bring our authors to communities, because there's something about that like richness of you know what we imagine that happens in New York, but actually happens all around the country of seeing these authors that you love at a bookstore, at a book festival, at a library, and just actually getting to hear them and hear them contextualize their work. So that's a big part of it, just really making sure that we do our part to make sure that literature is really like a national activity and not just something that we think is happening in big cities. It's all over. Um, but we also just are interested in access. Like, so it was really clear in the beginning that we could keep selling books to the same people who already know and love National Book Award books and who already consider themselves readers of literature with a capital L. But, you know, if you don't keep building an audience, what do you do? And if you only build an audience that looks exactly like the audience that you had in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen seventies and the nineteen nineties, then you know, where does that leave you really? So we've done a lot of educational programs all around the nation, you know, after school programs in Miami and in Texas and in Los Angeles and You know, you name it. But also we've given 1.4 million books to public housing. authorities. Yes. I was going to ask about that
1: effort. Yeah. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us more about that?
2: Yeah. So, you know, John King, who used to be the secretary of education, um, and I had a meeting early on, right when I started at the foundation. And he was saying, well, we want to really like celebrate how many books are going into our public housing communities. But we want to do new books. We want to give new books. And I said, I can do that. I mean, I didn't know that I could do that, but um, I, I figured I'd try. And we got all the publishers to donate books and then we forged relationships with the public housing authorities all around and the support of HUD and the Urban Libraries Council, which connected us to the libraries and the Center for Families Learning, which helped us to find literacy resources in each community. And just year after year, we just got those books there and made sure that young people and families had access to great, brand new, beautiful books because home ownership is a huge part of the um, arithmetic when you think about how to build a reader.
1: Right. And, and actually, speaking to that point, we do have a cut of the late Representative John Lewis accepting the Young People's Literature Award at the National Book Awards in 2016, which I believe was your first year, right? It um, was. And that's and, a real weeper. Yeah, Especially for a graphic novel.
2: I mean, man, every time I see that, I just
1: cry. Yeah, he <laughs> co-wrote and about his experience in the civil rights movement. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it really speaks to, like you're saying, just like what it means to have books in the house or access to books. Let's, let's listen to that cut.
4: This is unreal. This is unbelievable. Some of you know I grew up in rural Alabama, very, very poor, very few books in our home. And I remember in 1956 when I was 16 years old, with some of my brothers and sisters and cousins going down to the public library trying to get library cards. And we were told that the libraries were whites only and not for colors. And to come here, Receive this award. This honor for this. It's too much. Thank you. But I had a wonderful teacher in elementary school who told me, read my child, read. And I tried to read everything. I love books. I mean, yeah. Uh,
2: (laughs) When he says, I love books. Yeah. I'm glad you played that part because it's like that for me is the one that kills me. Just has pure love of the written word and how much it meant to him. Yeah. And how much other people
1: being there, you know, passing on that love right in the way that your your programs to do or just like the influence of another person. And it wasn't that long ago that black folk couldn't get a library card, too. So I think puts that in perspective. Right.
2: Mm hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really incredible. But, you know, I think that 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 was before we had started Book Rich Environments, the program that gives books to public housing authorities. And I think like just that speech happening up top of my time at the National Book Foundation, I think informed a lot of the work. Hmm. You know, I mean, I think it just and it wasn't just about black folks getting access to books, which is hugely important to me as a black woman. But it was just about creating an environment where we all believe That everyone deserves access to this thing and that we value it, that it's culturally important to each and every one of us, you know, that the book matters.
1: And so I actually want to, you know, use that point to be able to invite our listeners to share a memory of discovering the power of books and reading. Was there a particular book that sparked your interest? Is there a book that helped you get through this year even or a book you're looking forward to reading? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Also, if you have questions in general, for for Lisa as our conversation goes on. And and Lisa Lucas, would you like to answer that question as well? Do you have a memory of first discovering um, a love of books and reading?
2: You know, I always answer this question in, in phases because I, you know, there were different books at different times. Like as a little kid, I mean, I, I remember from the mixed up files of Basil E. Frankweiler, right? Which was just this magical transporting book about kids getting stuck in a museum and spending the night there and kind of like experiencing independence and all of the magic of the Met. And I just, I remember loving that book and wanting to read it again and again and again. Uh, I think about the Babysitter Club as a kid. Because it was like (laughs) collaborative reading, right? It was the first time that you're passing books back and forth to your friends and you were all reading the same thing. And it turned it into a, like reading we think of as in like isolation. We do this quietly by ourselves, alone in our rooms. But actually like that was an early experience of how connecting it can be. Um, but as an adult, I mean, I think um, I really look back to, you know, Toni Morrison, I think uh, Song of Solomon was a book that I think just opened my eyes to the magic of literature, how dense and rich and magical and wild and smart it can be. And I think that that sent me down a whole adult um Mission of kind of chasing down, you know, literature that had enough texture to, to 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 help clarify what it means to be a human being, historically, contemporarily, you name it.
1: And right now, I'd say that on the lists for a lot of people are, you know, what's being I guess termed like social justice reading lists, right? Mm-hmm. You know, coming yeah. out of the um, the reckoning around racism in our country this year, and um, and I know that you're you're. Foundation also has a literature for justice program. I'm curious to get your take one on on that program and and in general, kind of what you're seeing with the these book lists and and what you think it's um, kind of yeah, what influence it's having.
2: Yeah, so you know, I think for the literature for justice program, there's a wonderful program called Art for Justice, which was a fund that was started um, by Agnes Gund who sold a painting and convinced some other philanthropists to sell a painting. And and the idea was to sort of work from all angles to end mass incarceration. And we were able to apply for a grant and receive it in the inaugural um, grantee pool. And our work was going to be to just select and identify five titles per year that really told us something about the realities of mass incarceration in America, the policing system, you know, the justice system, uh, the impact on the people who have been incarcerated and their families, um, so that we just had more information because it felt like people really just didn't know. I mean, New Jim Crow came out probably like a decade ago mm-hmm. and it's a touchstone text, right? It changes the way that we talk about um, mass incarceration, but it's still one of those things where we know a lot of people are in jail. We know jail is not a place we want to go, but we don't really know how it rips apart families. We don't know how people are being put in solitary confinement. We don't know how people are being, you know, caught up in a bail system that, you know, unfairly taxes the poor. Um, and we wanted to just change hearts and minds by presenting incredible text, poetry, fiction, nonfiction um to really just help color in you know um some of the information that we societally are missing um i think that's a very different tactic than some of the sort of social justice books that we're seeking out the bestseller list right Mm -hmm. a lot of those are people are looking for instructional texts to teach them how to be less racist or to understand if they are racist in fact um I'm proud of the list that we put together for Literature for Justice because it is not speaking to any particular community where I think that books like White Fragility really are looking at a very specific person, you know, and a very specific community and talking about how to resolve an issue. Um, And I think that some of that work, Ibram X. Kendi's work on anti-racism is extraordinary. There are many of these things that are wonderful, but I do think it's been a little cynical, you know, the run on books to teach us how not to be a racist society. Um, And then, you know, our memory is short. Will these books sell in six months? I hope so. Hmm. In a year, I hope so. But it's like, I don't necessarily know that they will. And that, you know, trends and commitments are very different things. And I look forward to, you know, sort of a general population that is committed to actually doing the work and thinking about some of these issues.
1: Yeah. And that's and, you know, and you've spoken about the book industry and issues it needs to reckon with on racism and diversity. And I know you've called them to take more risks, publish and advocate mm-hmm. for more writers of color, and in general, do better. So what what would better look like in your eyes? What's that vision um, for you, especially as you're about to enter the industry as a publisher? Mm. Lisa Lucas, are you there?
2: Right. So
1: oh. when we close... Yeah, here. Oh, OK. I think you me? blipped out for a second. So yeah, if you can Sorry. start from... the No problem. So what does better look like uh, in your eyes? <laughs>
2: I think we have to widen our imagination. You know, I think when we close our eyes and we think of who is a reader, what does a reader look like? What are they wearing? You know, what does their house look like? Right? We imagine nine times out of 10, something totally different from who the reader actually is or could be. And I think that, you know, we have to imagine a bigger, wider, more diverse audience at foundation, because that will allow us to have faith in all different kinds of books. It'll give us the energy to sell books well to all different kinds of communities. So that's, I think, the biggest part. That'll change our hiring practices. That'll change so much about what we do is just having faith that, that we are selling something that people really want and that more people than we think want those things actually do. Um, So I think from that large general concept, you can drill down to thinking about how we equitably pay our authors, how we retain staff and talent within our companies and make sure that we are creating environments that are welcoming to new ideas, that are welcoming to different cultural perspectives, Um, you know, and then I think that we have to just sort of be open to change. And those are big ticket items. That's not like the thing you walk into an office and say, okay, we're going to do this today. We're going to widen our imagination, check off the box once you've done so. But I think that we really do have a crisis of imagination. You know, we really don't know how to do things differently than we've done them when it comes to sort of audience development. Um, and I think that you know you have a lot of changes that are happening just naturally right people aging out people passing on you know we've lost a lot of wonderful um, editors and publishers and ceos this year um, and it's been difficult um but I think that, that that sadness allows for real growth and 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 real shifting and changing so I think that we are you know um, in a moment of real reckoning a moment of real shifting and I I have understood people to be largely open to this moment of change. And I think that that's the question is going to be whether or not a year from now when maybe the politics of the day calm or maybe the, you know, the online conversation, the discourse on Twitter, you know, when it calms down, if the will will still be there. And I think that, you know, hopefully, you know, my one of my roles will be to remind that we still have work to do.
1: We have a comment from Beth um, who writes, I agree the book industry should take more risks, publish and advocate for more writers of color. What are the demographics for people who buy books? I'm seeing more and more books from conservative figures on the New York Times bestsellers list. I don't know if you have any um, specific insights or, you know, data on no, that, I mean, but do you have yeah thoughts on?
2: Look, you know, conservative people read. Democrats read. You know, I mean, it's like there is no signifier that says this is a reader and it's not. And so, you know, I would be remiss to say that, you know, what, 73 million people voted for Trump, right? That I don't want 73 million of those people to read the books that I publish, you know? Mm-hmm. I think everyone is either a reader or a potential reader, no matter who they are or where they are situated or what they do, you know? Yeah. Um, I think there is a real difference between publishing stuff that is dangerous. Um, Or publishing, you know, then just publishing something that is compelling or representative to any particular community. You know, I think that there, you know, it's like there's no there's just no type of person that reads a book.
1: And we have a tweet from James who says, do we need antitrust divestiture, uh, breaking up the big publishers to restore more diversity among media companies?
2: Well, as I get ready to join um, a, a big five publishing house, I have right. no comment. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I, it's it's outside it's a, that's outside of my pay rate. Got it.
1: Um, but yeah, I'll just I'll let James' tweet stand as well, just as a as a thought um, to consider.
2: I do think that we have to make space for on our media landscape, elevating and celebrating our wonderful independent presses. Um, they are doing groundbreaking work. Um, and always have done and with very little resources. And so I think that we have to, you know, we have to, to, to raise up the profile of these presses because they're extraordinary. We wouldn't have Claudia Rankin if it were not for Grey Wolf Press. You know, we wouldn't have Valeria Luiselli if it weren't for House Press. Mm. You know, we wouldn't have one of my favorite books of this year um, by Deesha Filia, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies, if it weren't for West, West Virginia University Press, right? So I think that, sure, you know, I think that there are a lot of books that come out of the big five, for, for sure. You know, that is a reality. But I think that we don't always do the work of um, of, of highlighting the extraordinary books that are coming from, our small presses. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is on us, too, to make sure that we are seeking out that work. If you go into any of the beautiful independent bookstores around this country, and I've been to a lot of them, you know, they have these books highlighted. You know, they are thinking about all of the incredible presses around this nation and how interesting and chewy the work is yeah
1: you know so yeah and it's it's reminding me of kind of what many newsrooms including KQED have been reflecting on in terms of you know how diverse are our sources what whose voices do we consider experts and why what sort of stories do we cover and I feel like those are similar questions in your industry you know whose voice whose writing gets appreciated published and promoted so it'll be interesting to kind of see um, how all that unfolds we're talking with Lisa Lucas outgoing executive director of the National Book Foundation and incoming publisher Pantheon and shock books we'll hear more of your stories of falling in love with books and reading and more from Lisa Lucas after the break I'm Ariana Prail and for Michael Krasny this is Forum Welcome back to Forum. I'm Ariana Prale, sitting in for Michael Krasny. And I'm talking with Lisa Lucas, outgoing executive director of the National Book Foundation and incoming publisher Pantheon and Shockin' Books. We're talking about the publishing industry, love of books, discovering a love of books and reading. And we want to hear from you, our listeners. What questions do you have about the state of the book publishing industry? Do you have a memory of discovering the power of books? Is there a book that helped you get through this year or one that you're looking forward to reading? Give us a call at 866 733 6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions and comments to forum at kqed.org. Uh, let's go to a caller, caller Savannah in Berkeley. You're on.
5: Hi. I'm calling to say, oh, I just completed my master's in teaching reading this summer, and so I, the power of books is not lost on me. I actually wrote my college essay and my essay for my master's program about the importance of my mom reading aloud to me as a child and how she didn't stop reading aloud to me once I learned to read, but she kept doing it until I was about 12 years old so that I could read, she could teach me more, uh, give me the options of reading more diverse books and books that I might not have been able to comprehend on my own if I had to read them so we could have discussions. And it got me through really hard times of um, just growing up and having to go through some trauma. And I can't stress enough how important I think reading is for children and also making sure that they grow and love reading. Like your caller said, our speaker, Ms. Lucas said, everyone is a reader or a potential reader. Right. And I really believe that.
1: Thank you for that story, Savannah. And we have another caller who also is appreciating reading aloud. Wayaka, um, you're on. <laughs>
6: Good morning. Um, it's so interesting that I'm coming right on the heels of that last caller because I have a very similar experience. My father was a uh, he was a beatnik from you know from the 50s and a poet from Greenwich Village and and I recall you know he started my romance with books at a very early age. He would read aloud to me and uh, for hours. He would always pick a, a novel and uh, and change his voices. To um, to reflect the characters that he would read to me, and I remember when I was nine years old, we spent a summer reading the uh, the Tolkien trilogy, and he would be Gandalf, and he would be Bilbo, and it was just it just ignited my imagination and my love affair, like I said before, with books. And in fact, um, even though my name is Wayaka now my parents named me Alexandria, Justine, Naomi, which is um, after a Russian quartet. And I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know who the author was of of those books. Um, but then I grew up to be a teacher of 20 years and read in the same fashion that my father did to excite children. And I read that way to, uh, to my own children who have also been ferocious readers. So I'm, I just hope that, um, that people continue that tradition with their children and, and get them excited and, and remind them that their imagination can go on for the rest of their lives. Yeah. So thank you for everything that you've done and I uh, appreciate it.
1: Thank you for sharing that story. Lisa Lucas, you thank have you. Re- responses to those calls.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it really is, you know, the thing that I'm hearing from both of them was just like a positive experience with the book as a young person. And that's so important. And I think that sometimes we get so caught up in trying to like over identify the like nutritious benefits of any particular book. Like this is the book you need to read. This is the book that's gonna make you smart or make you successful. When really it's just about building a practice and love of reading. And so, like, in our after-school programs, like, one of the things that we, you know, try to promote the most is choice. I don't care if we take you to a bookstore and say you can buy a book or two books, you know, with a little, like, you know, sort of allowance we give everybody to buy books on these field trips. It's like, pick whatever you want. If it's manga, if it's, you know, a comic book, if it's something silly, if it's something really dense, if it's science fiction, it doesn't matter. It's a book. And the virtues, the attendant virtues of reading one is going to, they're going to come from any of the books you know it does yeah. that we will carry with you for all of your life not necessarily whether one book is you know well is it better if somebody reads war and peace or if they read you know a rom-com i don't really care right honestly
1: <laughs> well this listener writes the you first know, chapter so, book. you know it's like i just
2: oh. want people to read because of... no no
1: Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, I was just going to read a, a listener comment that was saying the first chapter book I read was a biography of Helen Keller when I was in second grade. It was inspiring to read the story of a woman who was blind and deaf and accomplished so much. I think I still have a worn copy in my old closet in my parents' house. That was the start of my obsession with books. And Dan- Danielle writes, as a visual artist, I have a distinct memory of reading the first biography of Georgia O'Keeffe by Roxana Robinson. I relate to O'Keeffe as an artist along with her relationship to nature. That book fed me. And Jackie writes, I've just finished reading We Were the Salt of the Sea by Roxanne Bouchard, and next month my book group is reading Other Hand, also known as Little B., by Chris Cleave. Um, so just more shout outs of books that are making a, a difference in someone's life or leaving an impact. And I'm curious what books um, are have really caught your attention these days. What's on your nightstand? I'm sure you read a ton.
2: <laughs> I usually do. This has not been my world's best reading year. I have to say ah. the pandemic got me as much as it got anyone else. But, you know, but fortunately, my job is... Um, to you know, oversee these awards, which means that every year, twenty-five incredible judges give you um, like all of these books, fifty books, and they're all extraordinary. You know, so uh, you know, for me, right now, I've loved Interior Chinatown, which won the National Book Award for Fiction by Charles Yu, which is you know, it, it's both funny and satiric and very moving. Um, in a way that was very pleasing, and the book I told you earlier, *The Secret Lives of Church Ladies* by Deisha Filia, really knocked my absolute socks off. Mm-hmm. Um, short story collection, debut, and um, it's the short stories feel craft-wise like the best of short story writing, right? But the gaze that it puts on Southern Black church women you know, some queer, some not living their lives. It's just the beauty of the detail that you see in a Grace Paley story or in some of our great short fiction writers, right? It's all there, but I just, you don't see it applied to our lives, our you know our aunties' lives. And um, I just thought it was really that, that small act of subversion saying that we are centering these Southern black women, Christian women, um, it was just something that you hadn't seen, weirdly enough. Um, and, and contemporary, right? It's not exploring somebody in the 20s or in the 30s. It's today.
1: Right.
2: Um, and then I'm very excited to read The Dead or Arising um, by Les Payne and his daughter Tamara Payne, uh, which is about the life of Malcolm X. Hmm. Um, and it just, I have not dug in fully yet, but it's, um, it looks extraordinary. I'm super interested in history. Um, and, um, I thought it was very wonderful that she finished her father's work and then won a national book award for it. I thought that was moving. Having lost my father myself, I thought it was, um, just the backstory between the creation of it beyond the the words inside the book also moved me quite a lot. And the last one is Zadie Smith, Intimations. She did a short collection of essays all written after the pandemic set in, which I love her. You know, I've always loved Zadie Smith and, um, This was a slim, slim little volume that was exactly what I needed in this moment of insanity.
1: Yeah. So let's go next to caller Deborah in Berkeley. Deborah, you're on. Hi. Hi, go right ahead.
4: Thank you. I'm so inspired listening to all these great book recommendations and other people, what inspired them to be book lovers. I will say that my father, when I was Seven started reading The Lord of the Rings out loud to me, and I think it took two years to go through all the volumes, but it was a really special experience (laughs) together. And I wanted to share some of what I've been reading this year. This has been a very dystopian year, and I've been reading utopian books, uh, I guess as not only an escape, but also an inspiration for how do we build back better. And one of the books is called The Fifth Sacred Thing by Starhawk. And uh, it takes place in California and it really shows how we can build a better, loving, caring, sustainable, just society. Um, Shout out for that one. Another one is uh, called Ecotopia, written by a Berkeley person, Ernest Kallenbach, and it's having its, I don't know, 45th anniversary this year or some, or maybe even 50th, I don't know. Uh, and again, it actually shows a lot of ideas for the way forward and how we can have a better society. So those have been two of my books this year.
1: Great. Thank you for sharing those, Deborah. And let's go to caller Katie and Martinez. Hi, Katie. You're on. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah, go right
6: ahead. Great. So I wanted to give a little bit of a different perspective. I work at a small independent publishing company here in the Bay Area. And one of the things that's hardest for us is trying to get media attention. And so for me, I'm pitching Fresh Air, All Things Considered, all the podcasts, all the big broadcast media all the time with our smaller you know, but fabulous books and authors. And if that was something that maybe, um, you know, everyone could address too, is that we try we pu- we try so hard to publish great works by, you know, first time authors and authors of color and really important books and messages, Yeah, it would be just great to get some more media
1: attention. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Lisa yeah. Lucas, do you have any comments just in general in terms of the importance of small presses in this publishing ecosystem?
2: Absolutely. I mean it's just like it they're so important. They are often missing or not missing. They are they're publishing the work that, you know, the marketplace is not demanding that we publish. And that work is often so innovative and important and diverse um that it's very important to our, you know, sort of a holistic literary landscape, but it is important that the media pay attention because, you know, the amount of power that a big five publishing house has, the money that it has to promote something means you're gonna see it, you're gonna hear about it. They're, you know, they're able to sort of, you know, pitch on all, you know, um, all guns blazing. For their books, and when you're working at a nonprofit, small independent press, you are limited by the financial constraints of being small and nonprofit. And so, I think that um, they can do their extraordinary work all day long, and have done. And it is really up to us, the readers and the media, to actually be more equitable in what we think our audiences want to hear about. Because I, I, I believe. That so many of these books that, you know, that your caller was just saying, you know, don't get the attention, deserve the attention. So we Mm -hmm. have to do a little better on that. I mean, look, media coverage for books in general five years ago was miserable. It's much better now. And there is a direct correlation between how much we read and how much time media spends reminding us that reading is valuable and that there are good options to read.
1: And I think it's interesting too, because with that factor, there's so many, with so many more platforms for film and TV these days. I feel like it's also meant more books getting options. Like I know that's how I found out. Um, about Oh, it's, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it's the novel that Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts are are going to be starring in, uh, Leave mm. the World Behind. It was actually one of your oh, National yeah, Book Award nominees. Yeah. And that's actually how I was just reading. I, I read that news. And that's how I learned about that book. And I was like, oh, I'm into thrill. Let me check out that book. So I think it's also interesting. What Do you have any thoughts on kind of how those how publishing and film and TV seem to be blending sure. from the outside seem to be blending a little bit more now with more opportunities? <laughs> We
2: always, we've always had that. I mean, look, the Witches of Eastwick was an updike story, right? So it's right. like, you know, we definitely like have always been watching our great texts turned into films that we consume or TV. I do think that right now content is king, right? So it's like you've got Netflix and Apple, you know, and all of these different companies that are now moving into original content. So you just have more people that are adapting stuff. I think it's great. You know, I think that um I think that it's been nice because people have been acknowledging the relationship of the book to the film and to the show. And that creates a kind of you know, awareness of the book that you might wanna read as you hear the sort of like option deals announced in variety or on deadline. Um, so that's exciting. Um, but it's ever thus, I kind of think. But mm-hmm. I just think that, that we have done a better job of, of, of really elevating the book as a thing. You know, it's like, I, you know, you can sort of be cynical about celebrity book clubs or not, but I think it's great, you know, because you've got Read with Jenna and you've got Reese Witherspoon's book club and the OG Oprah's book club. And, and these these institutions do a lot of work exposing us to books. and um, And a lot of those movie tie-ins that production companies are doing at the same time, it's like, it's cool. I think it's like a really good thing.
1: We have a comment from Angela who writes, My grandfather, who had only a high school diploma, gave me my love of books. We would sit in his library and read together and talk. My mother, an educator, would read to us with all the voices at bedtime. And though many books did not reflect the black experience, I just pictured myself in the heroin shoes and I could immerse myself in the story. I am still a reader and have way too many books. Uh, let's go to <laughs> caller Nathan in Oakland.
3: Hi, Nathan. Hi, You're on. That? Thank you. Um, yeah, so I not to contradict a point earlier made by, you know, there shouldn't be depending on one book to you know change our lives, do all of this. Um, I'm about halfway through Atomic Habits by James Clear on Audible, and um, <laughs> it's uh, been an interesting read as far as uh, you know this year goes, as we find ourselves with a lot of time for reinvention or trying to uh just kind of make our daily lives a little bit smoother or reach those goals that have always been somewhat elusive um and yeah i i, I highly recommend it it's uh it's been something <laughs> i kind of feel like i've been having, having my life read to me a few times but um you know i just gave a uh, a copy to my mom and she's like three chapters in and she's already like wow i have been saying things about you know different points in here for years and she's like wow it's nice to you know, see someone else say it or see it on, see it on papers. So, yeah. Book being a friend. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) Thanks for sharing that, Nathan. And uh, Lisa Lucas, there was one other point I wanted to touch on with you, because I know you've been a champion for translated literature while at the foundation. And I'm curious how you see that potentially, do you see that continuing in your new role and kind of what are the voices you're most excited to, to hear from in your new role as
2: publisher? Absolutely. I mean, look, a translated literature book is just a novel that was written in another language. You know, it's yeah. just as good. And I think that we have a real responsibility to learn about our world, you know, to learn about where we live. Because we share this planet. We are interconnected. If ever there was a year where we realized how interconnected we all are, it's this year, you know, Um so, I, of course, uh, Pantheon has a and Shaken both have a long and storied tradition of presenting excellent work in translation, and I think that we will continue on. I do think that you know there are so many francophone writers that you know we haven't heard from, and 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 all sorts of fun little nooks and crannies around the world. That because three percent of the work that is published to the trade is in translation, only three percent. There's a lot of room to grow because all of you know, so many countries have robust interesting you know literary traditions themselves and we just aren't seeing them so i think there's just like it's one of those things where it's just like there's room to grow and i think there is a developing appetite um in american book readers or american readers um for this work and i think that that's been an effort of so many different people we started our translated you know literature prize but also you have words without borders an incredible organization you have number of people that have been really doing the work and so you know we're just hoping to keep on at the foundation and you know I, I look forward to joining their ranks as a publisher of work and translation when i get in place in january
1: well thank you so much for your work and for sharing it with us today lisa lucas outgoing executive director at the national book foundation and incoming publisher pantheon and shock books thanks for joining us i This is Forum. I'm
0: Ariana Prail,
1: and for Michael Krasny.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.